Curse. Welcome to Speak and Destroy. Speak and Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Marty Friedman, legendary metal guitarist, solo artist, and who I'm sure you know from the classic lineup of Megadeth that began with Rust in Peace. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to remind you that the best thing you can do is to leave a five-star rating and write a nice little review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about it, follow the podcast on social media, and you can also support us on Patreon, where you get access to bonus episodes called for my interview archives with Metallica-related and adjacent guests like Glenn Danzig, members of Lamb of God, and Kirk Hammett. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network, and without any further run-up, I want to get you right into this conversation with Marty Friedman. I've had a lot of conversations that I have loved through the course of doing this podcast, and this is certainly up there towards the top. So here it is, my conversation with Marty Friedman. This is Speak and Destroy. family but um my folks loved music and they had a lot of records and most of them were like uh, musicals like west side story and stuff like that um and when i was even before i could talk i was playing with the records and mostly just scratching them up but was fascinated by these discs that could bring like an orchestra into your house it was just like the strangest thing and i was just uh completely overwhelmed by that and I always liked having records and buying records and even if I didn't know what the record was I would just buy tons of records when I was six seven eight years old um and um just liked uh hearing music coming out of the out of the record player and um but when I saw Kiss I knew that uh, that was what I was gonna do um, yes. uh, up until then I was really into playing sports and and even though I was really skinnier and smaller than all the other guys you know was, I looked like I really really sucked and I didn't really suck as bad as I looked I mean I did suck but <laughs> I, I was I was better than you would expect if you looked at me because I was really into sports and I loved playing and, and um, just loved the athletic stuff and, and the competition and, and just the rivalries and the camaraderie and just the energy that went into sports. And I just loved doing that. And I never really put the connection between that and music until I saw Kiss in concert. I'm like, mm -hmm. these guys aren't playing sports, but this looks like equally as energetic and, and looks like something that 
as opposed to sports, it looks like something I could probably do just as well as these guys. Of course, when you're 13, you don't really know how much work goes into doing something as insane as a major production like Kiss. But at the same time, that's a good thing because you just dive right in and start working at it and start doing it. And then uh, I just knew right away that uh, that was something that I was able to do. And if I just kept doing it, I'd be able to do it sometime. It's interesting, the connection between sports and music there, because I didn't, I didn't grow up into sports at all. But then as an adult, uh, my, my friend, Andy Beersack uh, from the band Blackville Brides, who I, I know you're familiar with. Um, sure. I uh, just wrote a book with him over the last couple of years that's coming out um, later this month. But Andy, I, I mentioned that because Andy has made it his mission in the last few years to get me into football. And <laughs> Andy's not someone that you would think would be super into football. But part of his approach, uh, you know, I grew up in Indiana. He grew up in Cincinnati. So he's a Bengals fan. And his approach to the Bengals was like, look, man, it's it's really punk rock. Like they're the they're one of the worst teams. <laughs> they always lose, <laughs> uh, you know, be, being a fan is uh, like he really likened it to that, as you described, that uh, competition and that camaraderie. And then even, you know, the Bengals with the orange and black and knowing what a huge Kiss fan Andy is, he was drawing a lot of parallels to the imagery and the theatricality of of kiss with sports teams. And I had never, I never really seen fans get that. I think kiss fans get that maybe more than the typical rock fans, rock musicians who grew up uh, because they wanted to be like Led Zeppelin or, or deep purple or something like, I think, I think the kiss fans get the sports of it. And um, it was kind of like the bridge between like the potheads and the jocks because no jocks like, you know, Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin when, when we were kids. Um, but jocks like Kiss and potheads also like Kiss. And so there was something for both sides of the camp in there. And I think that's why uh, why Andy was probably drawn to it the same way myself and other other people who like both sports and music got into it. Yeah, and something else that's occurred to me, and, and this comes up, you know, doing this Metallica podcast, but also being a KISS fan myself, I, I finally understand when you hear people talk about sports and they're like, oh, I love the Chicago Bears, but they really like the 1980-whatever Bears when it was this quarterback and this coach and this and whatever, and because that's how KISS fans are. Like, you know, how many KISS conversations are about a particular <laughs> right. era, a particular lineup, a particular, you know. Um, right. And and I, I that's when sports kind of clicked with me where I was like, oh, OK, I, I get it because I understand that kind of fandom because I have it with with different bands, you know. Totally. Yeah. I never thought about that, but that's totally true. It's like nerds, you know, it's like nerds, <laughs> yes. you know, like, well, he wasn't wearing that purple sash on the 95 tour, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Exactly. That's, that's the same thing. It's like I like the team with this coach. And when as soon as they got the new coach, it changed. It's very similar. I never thought about that. Yeah, and even the way that you'll – some fans that love a team seem like they hate a team. And it's like, how is this person a fan? Because they're always complaining about the coach or whatever. And, and uh, man, that's KISS fans too and Metallica fans. Uh, that's, that's another great point. That's a great point. 
you hate the team, but you watch every single game. <laughs> yes. So something, you know, you know what that comes from? That comes from like the spark of when that team was so incredibly rad that mm. you just absolutely fell in love with that team at that point. And then from then on, you always have that bar to compare the team to or the band to and they never quite do it and it just pisses you off you know if you, if you saw kiss on the alive 2 tour or, or any time between say like 75 and 78 mm. it was just such an amazing thing that they could do anything for the next 40 years and those fans will still follow them, even though they don't like what they've done after that <laughs> nearly yes. as much. And it's just a testament to the magic of like a certain era. And it's got to be the same thing with football teams and other sports, because there's just something about a magical synergy, a terrible word, but I mean, it's just something magical that attracts you to want to go to a show or want to buy a ticket to a show or there's something that happens and you just hope to recapture that. And that's why I think people get pissed at sports teams when, when things change. And I totally get it. Never yeah. Thought about that and I, when I hadn't thought about it in terms of the spark, as you put it, and that, that makes a lot of sense as yeah. well. And, and, you know, you hear the phrase Monday morning quarterbacking and it's like, ah, that's every fan of, of these great bands, you know, whether it's kiss or Metallica, cause everyone's, yeah, because when you're a certain age and you discover a band at a certain time and it's so meaningful, the time, place, and circumstance of for you as the individual as you experienced it, then you become an adult and all of a sudden you're, you're second-guessing and, and Monday morning quarterbacking every single decision. <laughs> you know, you, Certainly. <laughs> even down to, uh, you know, when I have conversations with my adult friends about uh, new Star Wars movies when they come out. You know, everybody has their idea now as an adult of how they would have done it and, you know, how much better it should have been. And this should have been that way and that should have been that way. Whereas when you're a kid, you're not thinking about, well, what if I was in control? <laughs> what I do? No, you're not. You're just you're just enjoying the living shit out of it. You're yes. Just like, oh, my God, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And that leaves such an impression on you. And you just keep trying to chase that. And you hope that the band comes through for you. And sometimes they do. And sometimes they let you down and sometimes they surprise you and really impress you. But uh, it's that first spark that keeps you in there for the long run. You know what I mean? You might like something a little bit and enjoy it and have a good time at a show. And then you forget it the next year. Mm -hmm. But there are certain things like a sports team or maybe your favorite couple, band, couple bands or whatever that just stay. Even though they've let you down for decades, <laughs> you're still there because you know that. They, they're the same people. It could happen, you know? I'm going to make sure Andy listens to this episode because I think you really just described Bengals fandom <laughs> the way that he oh, sees well, it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I'm a Redskins fan, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, we finally got a good – the Bengals finally got a good quarterback, and then, you know, he injures <laughs> himself, like, four games into the season or whatever. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. <laughs> I'm like, why did you get me into this? It sucks. He's like, I told you. <laughs> That's part of the fun. We've got to commiserate together. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So what, what era was was Kiss in when you saw them as a teenager? I Would saw them on uh, Rock and Roll Over. I was already oh, a fan before that. I had all of the previous albums. Um, but the first time I saw them was on Rock and Roll Over. 
in uh, at the Capitol Center in uh, Largo, Maryland, and uh, what a show that was. I mean, that was my first concert of anything, so you can really just imagine the impact of, you know, it's not only the show, it's the whole atmosphere. You know, you get in there, and you, first of all, you've never heard music that loud before, <laughs> and you've never smelled that much pot in the air, <laughs> and and you've never it's just never been that excited before about anything. So it's got to like, you know, it's got to really hit you in an important type of a growth period of your life, you know, and when you discover things that that's pretty much what uh, defines, defines uh, a lot of your tastes and stuff is when you discover what was happening in your life. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, if I had a girlfriend who was into disco at the time and, and she was smoking hot, that might have, you know, might have changed my attitude towards discovering this heavy metal band. You know, the, the, the things that happen in your life so much influence what you find, what you discover, when you discover it. I mean, I might not have even heard of Kiss until like The Elder or something. And then I would have thought, this band sucks. <laughs> but fortunately, I discovered them at what I consider the absolute apex of their live experience. And um, so did many of my contemporaries. And so it, that's something that uh, allowed me to enjoy being a fan of theirs through all kinds of ups and downs in their careers and whatever they do, I will continue to support them. You know, they're not in it to, uh, to cater to any one fan's taste, nor is any band, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, uh, as the fan, you know, you have your, your own personal image of every single band or artist that you like, and you tailor your listening habits to that ideal image. And, um, just glad that bands are there to do that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I, and I love, as you pointed out about kiss and something we'll certainly get into about Metallica, that idea that they do what they want, how they want it for themselves. And then that extends outwards to people, you know, connect with it or they don't, but there's that authenticity and that purity of, of intention and something that I think has been consistent, certainly through your career as well, sure. that, that comes across where, you know, like, okay, this person means it. You know, nothing's, there's no pandering. There's no trying to uh, conform to something for the sake of it. And I think True. that people, you know, people respond to that. And that, that gives you more longevity. So what was it about the guitar, you know, seeing Kiss that, you know, as opposed to the drums or being a lead singer or picking up the bass, you know, what was it that drew you to the guitar? Guitar just looked like, I could do it. You know, I looked at the guys playing guitar and I'm like, I could do that. <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of stupidly right. thinking I, well, those guys are just jumping around banging on guitars. I can do that. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I could, I mean, it really, I, I'm glad that I didn't first discover like, uh, who was the big progressive band at the time? I guess. Yes. Or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, King Crimson. If I heard them, I'm like, yeah, I definitely can't do that. I guess music is out. Forget about it. Mm. But I saw Kiss and then the Ramones, which made it even easier for me to think that I could do it. Um, I, I got encouragement right away. And uh, I, I 
accomplishment, you know, because you actually get a guitar and it's really not rocket science uh, to at least kind of mimic what they're doing on the instrument. Uh, again, it was lucky that I didn't uh, become a fan of a much more uh, progressive, difficult music playing group. You know, I was lucky that it was punk rock and Kiss and things like that. Oh, man. And that, that's the beauty of the Ramones and, and Kiss and a lot of hard rock stuff and, you know, the Misfits and these bands that have sure. great songs that the... The mu the mu the music isn't about the musicianship or the musicality in the sense that oh it's got to be so technical or so I mean I, I misfit songs like the the arrangements are usually nonsense you know it's like oh he's he's singing the verse over the chorus this time <laughs> you know like it's it's all feel you know and I think that that's part of the magic of that and yeah as you said that that sure. gets you the technique comes later sure. if you've got that that want to do it. And if you feel like, like you said, it's accessible. That's so important. Sure. So, important. Sure. so uh, moving right along and moving forward. Um, and don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to grill you about every band you've ever been in, but I am curious <laughs> about, um, about uh, the first band, you know, the first time that you got together with people and we're like, okay, we're trying, I'm trying to have a group. What was, what was that experience? Well, well, the first real band that uh, I did was a group called Deuce, um, and right. uh, shamelessly taking a. Kiss I was going to say, "Where's that name from?" Band name, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, which was pretty common for all bands to do mm -hmm. at that time. Um, but we really, you know, bands are like a chemistry, and it really has very little to do with the skills of each member, but the concoction that happens when certain people play together and we had it we were all like 14 15 and um it was just a fantastic experience we were like a high energy punk rock heavy metal hard rock kind of band um and uh really really great experiences and um we played constantly we had a huge place to rehearse in and people came from all over the washington area to watch us rehearse and there was never a time when no one was there it was always just the big party and it kind of got us in performance mode all the time because it was never let's practice now we're going to play a concert and we were always in concert mode and it was just a, a wonderful experience and um kind of got all of the rock star ego stuff out of the system at a very early age. Um, people treated us like rock stars because as far as they were concerned, we were from a different planet because here we were on this stage playing this loud music and just, we looked like the same artists that we would be seeing in the Capitol Center or whatever arena, but we were playing in the neighborhood so we got all the perks, you know, people would bring us all kinds of illegal substances <laughs> and, um, you know, there are plenty of girls and plenty of guys, fans. And it was very much a mirror of what real rock stars were going through. But we were little kids. And, um, of course, coming with that, you get all the 
band politics and egos and the singers. Where's the singer always out banging some chick in the back and we can't get him into the rehearse with us and <laughs> all that stuff we got out of the way when we were like 15, 16 years old. And, uh, and so when it came time to like start being a real musician and trying to make it in the world of music, I had already realized that all of that nonsense was only going to get in the way. And suddenly I became this choir boy of like no drugs, no drinking, working super hard all the time, networking constantly, practicing constantly, working like a complete maniac to get from point A to point B. It was never, ever easy. And so, uh, you know, I always um, am very thankful that I got all of that ridiculous rock star stuff out of my system when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm still in touch with all those members of the band, and they're all very well-adjusted normal good people <laughs> and um it was very weird because at that time we enjoyed the hell of it, out of it but we were like deep purple or something you know there's always some kind of some kind of ego flare up and there was mm -hmm. some kind of fight and there was some kind of uh you know problems with the law and there was just all of that stuff as we were totally enjoying this musical experience but it was all this the nonsense that happens in adulthood to many professional bands. And luckily I was able to uh, skate away from that in an early age. So I, I look back on that first band deuce with a lot of, uh, a lot of really good memories. It's funny because it reminds me, you know, growing up uh, somewhere like Indianapolis and, you know, prior to the internet age and all of that, that, that made things so much more interconnected and made it easier to get your music out there. I can think of so many bands in the local scene where you watch them go through like the entire cycle of, you know, it's like, Oh, this is their rattle and hum phase, or this is their, like, you know, their white album uh, within the span of just like a year or two, you know, and, and you would see them become really, really popular in town. And, and, and yeah, as you said, I remember some of my first shows when there would be local openers for national touring bands, my friends and I didn't differentiate those bands from the national touring bands. It, they right. were, you know, we, we wanted their autographs. We wanted, we treated their demo tapes like albums. You know, there really right. wasn't really a distinction to us because as you said, like these guys are on stage. They look like all the bands in the magazine, you know? Right. They got the look, they got the sound and, you know, you put you play the cassette in the car just like you play you know a Judas Priest cassette mm -hmm. in the car, and uh, sounds almost the same. I mean, uh, right? Little kids don't know the difference between massive production and and, and uh, demo production. They don't know. They just it's just uh, it's very weird to get that kind of adulation at an early age. But uh, in my case, I was very lucky that uh, it didn't uh, get out of hand and. and you know, worked in my favor yeah i've got some of those, those early lessons out of the way as you said so the next band puts you even in some proximity with metallica right away um you know when the band was still called aloha you oh. you, you made it on to right. metal massacre 2 and of course metallica very famously their first uh, official release was on the metal massacre compilation sure. um before we dive into all things metallica uh, tell me a little bit about the the formation of that group and 
and uh, how you were able to find your way onto that uh, coveted Metal Massacre series. At the time, I was uh, I lived in Hawaii because my dad's job got stationed over there. He he was uh, in the government, and uh, we moved to Hawaii, which is a wonderful place to be, but the absolute worst place in the entire universe to try to put together a band of any kind, much less a band that is trying to uh, be completely cutting edge and do something new, which what I was trying to do was I just discovered like new wave of British heavy metal. Mm. But I always thought that the guitar work in that music could use some kind of more modern approach and more interesting approach. And I thought I was the guy to do just that. And that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, but the problem was I was in fucking Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were a good musician, uh, uh, a young musician trying to do something that young people listen to Hawaii is not the place to go do it because Hawaii is like, uh, in a time warp of 20, 30 years and, and no young people live there. <laughs> um, it, it's just, it was literally like the only music that was happening there was, uh, uh, stuff like tourism music, um, you know, tourism, Hawaiian music, which is wonderful. And I absolutely love it, but um, absolutely the complete opposite of what I was trying to do. So it was very, very difficult to get anything done. Despite that, I put together a band and we changed our name several times. And uh, I won't bore, bore you with that, but we, uh, um, we were really trying to be an over-the-top, insane band of very heavy, very aggressive, very guitar, um, just tons of guitar and tons of metal uh, spirit type of music. And, you know, we, we did a couple indies things and, um, and uh, I don't know if our, maybe it was like one of the very first things that we did was a metal massacre album. We, we did a couple indies releases and um, just everything was just such seat of your pants back then, you know, you're sending things, in manila envelopes to people and and uh i think uh the metal i don't don't really remember much about the details of metal massacre but i do know that um i had heard of metallica back then and i was a massive fan of that demo tape that they had Mm. and um i still remember i used to jog to that every single day in hawaii where i lived um because it was the only thing that was like energetic enough to keep me motivated in uh in to work out or jog or anything like that you know at that time um punk rock was just it was completely gone and it became this new wave music that i just hated so much and i was just in a real big hate affair with all kinds of music in the 80s i really hated all of it even the rock the only stuff I liked was new wave of British heavy metal. And, um, even that, you know, I, I liked the overall vibe of it, but inside of it, there wasn't really any one band that, Oh my God, I love these guys except for maybe Raven Raven. I really, really loved them. And then when I heard the Metallica demo, I'm like, these, this is it. These are the guys. I mean, it sounds like punk rock, but 
it sounds like metal and, and it just kills. So this is like, this is it. But I remember, I just love that demo a lot. And I don't remember if I heard the demo before I got involved with Metal Massacre or not, but it was probably right around that time. And, and uh, I just thought they were the shit. <laughs> and for the record, I thought, I thought what what we did on Metal Massacre totally sucked. So, <laughs> to throw that out there, and I was very thankful that they allowed us to be on the record. Well, I, to to jump into a couple of things that that you just mentioned yeah. that made me think about one is that the kind of geographical isolation of Hawaii um, means that. You're not getting a lot of shows either, in addition to all the other obstacles that you pointed out. Oh, no. no Bands way, aren't nothing. touring in Hawaii. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. And, and then nobody knew, even at that time in the mainland, no one knew who the Scorpions were, Judas Priest, or and, and any of those bands. Uh, it was a strictly, it's a niche Mm -hmm. I don't know how to pronounce that in English anymore. A niche, a niche. I, I, I'm, very, I always speak English, and I don't either. And I'm a writer. So. <laughs> a niche market. You know, there were some maniacs who knew that stuff, and, and that was it. But in Hawaii, forget about it. You know, so there was really nothing. And um, so it was not only that, not the fact that there was nothing, but there was just no one who cared in the slightest about what we were doing. You know, so... You know, we could send tapes out and, and people in Europe and in Japan and America, uh, underground people would rave about this stuff sometimes and put us in little fanzines and things like that. And that was a huge, huge boost to uh, our morale. But where we were, there was no one would put us on a show and and uh, there were no shows to be put on and no venues that would have a band that was as loud as we were. So there was really no place to... Uh, uh, polish our chops as a band, unlike my Deuce band that was in America, and we were playing every night live in front of whoever showed up, which could be hundreds of people uh, on a on a weekday. So uh, it was just a very uh, unhealthy uh, environment to try to put together a band. We, you know, did the best we could. You know, one of the things I find inspiring about your story and a lot of the things that I love is that idea that you, you, there were things that you liked and were drawn to, but that you had this attitude of like, okay, I really love this element of this thing, and but I wish it, it had more of this. And the idea that you created what you wanted to hear, right? Like the, like the filmmakers that make the movie that they want to see, you know, write sure. the book that you would want to read. And I think that's where a lot of innovation comes from is not this idea that you're inventing something from scratch but more that you're taking a little of this and a little of this and combining it in a way it's never been combined and then putting your own sure. life experience and perspective on there and then that's what creates you know because you you could reverse engineer metallica and say well it's it's diamond head and motorhead and this and that and whatever but no one had put those things together the way they did and then through the you know, you have this European immigrant in the band and then you have this, you know, you've got Hetfield and like, you know, there's just something about all those elements that becomes something new. And I think your story is very similar sure. in that sense. You know, when you talk about the sure. things that, that you liked and what you wanted to do. I, I, I remember reading actually that you're a Raven fan. Um, I think I saw you talking about Raven in an interview. I actually had John Gallagher from Raven on the podcast sure. recently. And sure. 
he had fun, he had fun stories about Raven and Metallica and the Winnebago together. Well, that, sure. that first Metallica tour, uh, sure, sure. near death experiences and whatnot. Um, yeah. so you discovered the, the no life to leather demo. Um, I love that idea of, of jogging along to it. <laughs> um, that's my biggest memory of it. Cause it, it was the go-to. I mean, I couldn't jog to anything else because everything else just sucked compared to it. <laughs> yeah. And it's got, and the tempos and, and everything. And yeah, just revolutionary at that time, especially. So as you were, uh, you know, as cacophony was coming together, which was, you know, uh, just such a revolutionary band in its own right. In my opinion, the way that the, I don't remember anything else that featured the kind of classical sounding, um, like you said, just sort of the modern, the modernization of the guitar of, of what was happening with guitar in that type of music. Was that, was there anything in particular that you were things that you were trying to put together like a one plus one equals two sort of thing? Or what was the, I was just trying that? to uh, make a, a musical statement, kind of like what you said before about doing something that wasn't there and mm. um guitar work in general and hard rock and heavy metal had gotten considerably better um but i found that uh guitar work um in kind of pop metal and hard rock metal was getting good but um as far as like taking things to real extremes like dark and dissonant and non-commercial extremes in the world of electric guitar. No one was doing it because there's probably no money in it and they would be right. But um, uh, I just wanted to explore the limits of what I could do guitar-wise as far as intensity goes. And um, at, at, by that point, I'd really developed as a guitarist I thought, and I and I developed a unique way of playing, and I wanted to exploit that in such a way that I could really uh, do something that would stand out for better or for worse. You know, I never really thought that what I was doing was going to be commercial, and never really expected commercial success from what I was doing because I mean if you broke it down what it was my guitar playing was kind of a uh, a steroided out version of uh, Ace Freely, Uli John Roth, Frank Marino then suddenly goes to Hawaii and has all kinds of time on my hands so with, with that time all I did was analyze vocalists from Asia and, and mimic their vocal delivery on guitar at the same time, I was learning all this dissonant violin music like Isaiah and, uh, and music from Stravinsky and just this dark, cold, dissonant kind of melodic structured music. And I put all that stuff together and it's like, it, there's no way this is going to be commercial, but at least it's going to be fresh and it's yeah. going to be something that re represents something that I dig. So I wanted to at least see what that was going to come out to be. And um, that's what it was. And at the time, I, I thought it was uh, the best I could do. I mean, the idea that it was 
not only making something that you wanted to hear, but something that represented who you were, all these different things that you discovered and, and putting them together. Sure. I mean, yeah, I think that's so, it's so important. If there's any kind of lesson to be drawn from that, um, that's what, that's what people should aspire to do. Not, I mean, you know, of course the first thing you do is you play covers and you try to look and sound like your favorite band or two, but when you really get going, I think that that should be, that should be the sure. goal is take, take the things you love and reflect that back into the world in a way that hasn't been done before and adds to the conversation. Rather that, than just I think that again. is the real goal. I mean, if you're doing that, then it really doesn't matter if you're succeeding or not succeeding uh, on a commercial level. If you're doing exactly what you just said, then um, longevity is as long as you want to keep doing that. And uh, I think that's what keeps most people in music. I mean, because it is a grind and it is endless hard work. But if you're doing just that, if you're expressing yourself in a way that you want to hear that doesn't already exist, then it's something that you enjoy doing and it has to be done. So uh, you don't complain that, you know, well, this year wasn't as good as last year or, mm -hmm. or things happen, you know, you just keep doing it because that's what you do and you stay out of the results. Oh, indeed. Indeed. And, and that way also your expectations are tempered by your own definition of success, which is artistic fulfillment. And then, you know, True. the rest comes as it comes. So going from the demo, do you remember the first time you heard Kill 'Em All or, or what your experience was? Yes, with that record? Uh, totally. Um, at that time, I was deep in the underground trading world. I had a couple of good friends who were uh, right, in, right on that stuff. And so they would be sharing my demos that I'd be making in Hawaii. And they would share all the latest stuff from every every underground band around the world. So I was very uh, in tune with that when I lived in Hawaii. And of course, I, I was a huge fan of the demo. And I was completely blindsided when Kill 'Em All came out because I thought the music was so uncommercial that these guys would never in a million years <laughs> get a record deal. Mm -hmm. I just liked it too much, so there was no way. I mean, what was on the charts back then? I mean, Duran Duran and stuff like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, split ends and, like, <laughs> Tears for Fears and Wham C and all Cindy that. Cindy Lauper like, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I just hated all that stuff. Um, but uh, when I just thought, I just liked this music too much, I never, ever dreamed that it would ever come out. I mean, if it did come out, it would come out on, like, some shitty indies thing you know or mm -hmm. you know some I, I remember my early records in, in that i made in hawaii was in a band called vixen and the only label that would put it out was this label that was known for doing these strange shaped discs um picture discs and like they did some record that was in the shape of a football <laughs> and a, a vikings helmet and just shit like that so i thought that like if metallica ever put something out it would be on like some crappy label like that. Uh, yeah, an, an, a novelty. Saw, yeah, like a weird novelty, a novelty release. Right, yeah. a novelty. That's what I thought. But then when I saw the record in an actual record store in Hawaii, no less, um, I'm like, I just could not friggin' believe it. Could not believe it. And I'm like, it was the coolest thing ever. And it kind of made me think, well, if this happens, then maybe someday I might have a shot of getting out of the complete underground mm -hmm. because 
nothing was more underground than Metallica at that time. And they were just doing underground better than anybody else at the time, um, or at least more in my particular taste. So I'm, I was just blown away. I was like, I was shocked. I was happy. I was a bit jealous sure. um, because up until that point, we were kind of in the same circles. We'd be in the same little, you know, Xerox uh, fanzines and stuff. And there'd be a review of a Metallica demo and then it'd be a review of a Vixen demo and kind of in the same thing. I did know that I thought that they were just so much cooler than the bands I was making, but I didn't, it didn't see it coming that they were going to get a record and have the record sound that good and look that good and just be that cool right at that point. So I was blown away and um, just stoked um, that the world was ready to start accepting some heavy metal music for better, or for worse. And isn't it interesting too, in, in terms of our, perception and our perspective in that in that moment it it seemed like metallica had made it already <laughs> you know? oh by far they completely exceeded <laughs> any humble uh, expectations that any of us had and dude look at this the metallica has a record Right. <laughs> it's in the it's record great. store next to other records it's in the record real bands. store it's a, yeah. a full-on record and dude it sounds great do you remember um how you felt uh about the differences i guess between the the demo versions of those songs and the album versions of those songs uh i don't remember i just remember sonically the record sounded a little better but i thought that uh I like the demo a little bit better for whatever reason. And you need, these are intangible things, you know, mm -hmm. you live, uh, you live with something and then you hear a different version. I was like, well, I'll go back to the original, you know, cause I just love the demo. I, I thought the album did it justice. And if I had not heard the demo before I heard the album, I would have right. loved the album just as much, but uh, I, I wasn't disappointed. I thought it was a great version of it. Yeah, when David Ellison was on the show, he was saying that the way that he plays the bass line and mechanics is the Ron McGovney way, because he learned that song from the No Life Till Leather demo. And, cool. you know, by the time the Cliff Burton version had come around, that was the one that he was already familiar with. And so just some of the nuances and the even in the bass line. You know how things can change and evolve and stuff like that. Sure, sure. So do sure. you do you remember then Ride the Lightning, where you were and how that hit you? Yeah, yeah. At that point, um, a lot of the super underground guys were saying that Metallica was selling out. Because <laughs> there's a ballad. At, at that point, because there was a ballad <laughs> yes, on it. Yes, yes. I always point that out when because it comes up on the show all the time. Whether they, whether it's people that that bounced on the black album, or they bounced with load and reload, or whatever point where they might have diverged, whether or not they ever came back, I'm all. That's always the first thing I point out is I go, you know, um, people said they sold out on their second album, so it's not. It goes but, back to what you were saying earlier about time, place, and circumstance. Who you were when you yeah, discovered each something. Each person and, has a valid valid opinion each person's opinion is equally valid so 
you can't say, no, they didn't sell out. Yes, they did. It's really <laughs> irrelevant. Nothing is more irrelevant than that. Right. It's all in your perception. Mm -hmm. But like at the time, I mean, I thought, yeah, they might have. Yeah, I think it's a cop out because you're really, really, in fact, extremely impressed that the album, first of all, second album came out. Third of all, it was on a major label. And fourth of all, it was fucking heavier than Kill 'Em All. Let's just fucking call a spade a spade. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the album opens with fight fire with fire. <laughs> Thing is, fuck. There's nothing heavier than that at the time. So you gotta like allow them a ballad somewhere in there. It was by far the heaviest thing. It was Electric, correct? Electric was the label, yeah. right? Yeah. It was by far the heaviest thing Electra had ever considered releasing. So it was like. It was a major, major cool thing. So, like, you know, a couple of people were saying, yeah, they sold out. But whatever. I mean, the album was fantastic. The album was just an absolute. It was just like, wow, metal is going to, like, be in the mainstream. And it's not going to be shitty metal. It's going to be great metal. So it was very, very inspiring. Very, very inspiring. And also, lyrically, like, here, here's a band that, the songs aren't about chicks. The songs aren't about Satan. They're not, you know, all of all of the different uh, cliches and you know, kind of tropes of different types of metal, which, you know, there's plenty of bands that sang about those things that I like. But it was really refreshing that Metallica was was tackling, you know, going to H.P. Lovecraft and then, you know, the Bible and, you know, all these different places that... Uh, it was yeah. really kind of adventurous, and yeah, as you said, especially at the time, very anti-commercial. You don't you don't put on a record that starts with "Fight Fire with Fire" and go, "Oh, this is this is a band really trying to appeal to the masses." I was just, uh, you know, my breath was taken away. It's like the bar had been raised, the fucking barricade was broken. Anything could happen after that. After that album came out on a major label, it was probably a defining moment i mean i'm not it you know journalists really have that stuff that thing down you know when defining moments and stuff but if you think about it if kill em all just ended as it was on an indies record i mean that would have been just about right for the world of heavy metal mm -hmm. but no they released uh uh you know i think it, now that we're talking about it, it's not something that i think about every day but if you think about it that record hadn't hadn't come out i mean what i'm trying to say is in english um that record came out and probably gave the world of heavy metal a good solid 20 years to coast after it because <laughs> had it not come out there would be no more major label metal bands first of all it would have stayed in the indies world uh, but because of that being on a major label and doing well in the band, like totally kicking ass, it it it, it allowed heavy music to uh, become real and a, a real thing for a lot of people and open the doors for people and stuff. And of course, that brings us right into Master of Puppets, a record that you've spoken about on the record before. Uh, I was reading a quote from a Billboard article. I think it was maybe an anniversary for that record or something. Um, and you talked about a lot of the things that we're talking about now, about how they were able to strike a balance between, uh, you know, crashing into the mainstream while still sounding decidedly underground. 
and still having the. Aggression. I mean, it, it was it was there was also a little bit of jealousy going on because um, what they were doing, it wasn't like there was it, at least from the listeners' standpoint, it wasn't like there was label people or management or anyone telling them do this, blend this, this is trendy, try this. Mm-hmm. It was sounded like they were doing whatever the fuck they wanted to do and cool shit. And it was getting out there. Now this is great, but like you have to realize in the underworld of people trying to make it in music, musicians, billions of guys out there in bands, their whole existence revolves around trying to figure out, what combination of the latest trends to blend together to get to the next level of their career, to get signed, Mm -hmm. to get uh, a gig, to just move. It's always about analyzing things that are already there and trying to uh, hop onto the trend. Okay, now this grunge is popular. Now let's do something like grunge is always about that. But Metallica didn't seem to have any of that and to and were succeeding. So you can imagine the bitter envy of all of the musicians out there at the time, to some extent, myself included, that were just trying to, uh, you know, get a hold on to the next level of whatever, whatever level they were at in the music business. And um, it was really, really something to see. And if it wasn't so great, we'd be able to deny uh, it was, mm. it was just lucky, but mm. it wasn't, it was the shit was really good regardless of how underground it was, regardless how uncommercial it was. The stuff was just really, really that good. And it deserved every single bit of attention that it got. Meanwhile, everywhere else in the world was just trying to figure out a way to, uh, copy something or to to get on some bandwagon to get them to the next level so yeah metallica seemed like the only band only band who wasn't doing that it was just absolutely something to see well said and and, and even to your point uh, established bands who had had hits or, or some level of success were, were also still doing what you described whether you know in terms of trying to stay afloat or stay relevant or oh you know, yeah let alone bands that were that were on oh, the yes. come up um, now, through those early records, um, and obviously you were busy doing your own thing, did you have an opportunity to see them live back in the day? Uh, never. Never did. Um, never did. Um, the only time I saw them live was watching from the stage when uh, Megadeth did a tour with them in, in uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. And that was just an absolute uh, highlight of uh, my tenure with the band, for sure. Um, but I never got to see them live back uh, in uh, back in those days, and uh, just never worked out. Uh, that's one thing that David Elson mentioned. He said that uh, when that documentary, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, came out, uh, which I had the, the guy who directed that on the show as well, Uh, David told me a story about uh, the two of you watching that on the bus together on tour and this realization that you each had of, man, uh, bands really are the same, you know, like watching the (laughs) the inner workings and the behind the scenes and the the conversations that happen and everything they go through and all of that. Like, it's just like our band, you know, Um, 
was really the same, exactly the same. Yeah, tell tell me a little bit about that from your perspective and watching watching that it's VHS. Like, well, I mean, I don't remember the details, but from what I can tell you is, um, the backstory is much more heartbreaking than the front story. Mm. Um, the front story is what everybody sees: the amazing shows, the fantastic fans, and the wonderful audiences, and the huge concerts and just all of the wonderful things that go into amazing bands like like those two bands um but what you saw in the video i assume was just shrinks and fucking band meetings and and just sadness and not getting along and just pettiness and boringness and and just human things that are you know come with the territory um the things that you have to man up and deal with if you want to have the good side of being in a major league type of band um so it was kind of nice to see that other bands were going through the same nonsense that we were going through yeah um but you know it's not like you know roses and peaches you know it, the, <laughs> the fun stuff is on stage and it's the other 23 hours mm-hmm. um you know that, that's a everybody says that but I, i'm sure that's what uh david and i were were you know agreeing about you know it's it's just so much non-fun stuff and it has so little to do with music um when you're at that level and when you're playing not that Megadeth was ever at Metallica's level, but like when you're kind of at that level and you're doing these big things, the people watching you tend to forget that there's a lot of interpersonal things and and roadway blocked roads that could easily put a stop on all of the good things if you don't keep them in check and keeping all of those possible roadblocks at bay is a constant constant nightmare that you just have to keep doing but it's all worth it when you see the smiles on the fans faces yeah absolutely and i think that there's something you know going all the way back to we were talking about sports and about uh, camaraderie and competition and all of that you know there's a moment where you realize uh oh you know the grass is always greener, right? But then, you know, these other bands are going through the same stuff we are, you know, sure. Um, at, sure. at all levels, you know, and all the way up and down the chain. Um, sure. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty that goes on behind the scenes of you too that we don't know about, <laughs> you know? Actually, you know, it's <laughs> the more you do this stuff, the more you learn how to avoid that stuff before it even happens. Mm. Um, it really, uh, you know, and the people that you tend to turn, the people you surround yourself with you learn and there you know there's not so much of a revolving door of people mm. and that's kind of the thing you find chemistries that 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 work and um yeah I, you can't go on with that type of thing forever i think every single person figures out ways to uh to keep those roadblocks away and then hence the long careers of both Megadeth and Metallica and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Everyone's figured out the ways to make it work. And um, 
But I think at the time when those videos were coming out and, uh, you know, there's particularly juicy stuff to watch to make a video of. (laughs) And and that, you know, once you get all that stuff kind of in check, the videos are a little bit less juicy. (laughs) Indeed. Um, And speaking of people that you surround yourselves with and personalities, and this is this is still taking us back a bit. But another person I had on the podcast recently was Bob Nalbandian. And he mentioned the story to me of of being friends with you and and uh, uh, so somewhere in that um, in that process of you joining Megadeth was Bob, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, he's directly the guy who told me that they were looking for a guitar player. And he's the guy who uh, um, set it up. He he was good friends with the manager, Ron Lafitte at the time. Mm. And um, he was completely the middleman and uh, made it happen. Yeah, so cool. Man, he seems like a, a really sweet guy. And, and yeah, and somebody who, who met Lars prior to the formation of Metallica. So he's... Oh, he's, yeah, he's, he's the guy. He was like a guy who gave a lot of encouragement to underground people at the time and and put out fanzines and featured these people who otherwise would have never never seen the light of day but all of these people had something good to offer if you were a fan of heavy metal music so he did a really big service to the fans and the people making the music you know had he not kind of been that interconnective person who knows you know, how people would have discovered a lot of those um, young bands at the time, including myself and including Metallica. So uh, uh, he's just a very knowledgeable guy and uh, very passionate about the music that was his taste and doing something to help. You know, there's one thing about being a fan, but there's another thing to actually go out of your way to uh, help, you know, the people who are making the music you like get further in their in their quest of making music and very few people do that out of that type of uh, innocent uh, you know those uh, innocent intents to do that you know so uh, I got to give them credit for that super guy yeah um, well, before we land the plane here there's, there's <laughs> still so many things I would love to talk to you about but I know I can't keep you forever um, I had discovered cacophony um, just prior to well, I guess it would have been eighty eight, eighty nine. So yeah, just prior to you joining Megadeth, but I didn't actually hear the stuff you did on Shrapnel until the introduction album came out, and that was like a <laughs> that was, you know like you were saying time, place, and circumstance. Um, sure. Yeah, you know, girlfriend I had at the time, I think I would have been when that record was out, maybe twenty one. Uh, but introduction was a makeout record. So that cool. was that was in the CD player for many a many a makeup. I used to get grossed out when people told me that. I used to get grossed out when people told me that, but then it just became such a thing that I I just appreciate it. <laughs> and maybe 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 that speaks to the uh, the sphere of influence within the metal world, right? Because it's like, well, you're not going to put on uh, Rain and Blood. <laughs> so then well, that's literally that's exactly that's kind of exactly. That should have been like a slogan in trying to sell this thing because <laughs> my my fans were metal fans, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But like, a, you know, exactly as you say, you're not going to play Rain in Blood when you're trying to, you know, get intimate with someone. <laughs> so for those moments, 
You know, here's this. Uh, somebody should have been on the advertising campaign for that. Somebody dropped the ball. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And you could have got you could have gotten all the 21 year old metalheads like me to to testify. <laughs> I couldn't do it myself because, I mean, what am I going to do? Play my own record with I'm trying to get some action. I mean, I, I didn't have that much of an ego. Here, baby, listen to my music. <laughs> or just putting it on and not telling her who it is. <laughs> yeah, that's what I should have done. Unfortunately, my guitar playing has this, like, sound that you can immediately tell this who the true. hell it is. And you as the player, of course, if you're listening to that, you're probably going like, oh, there's that one thing on there that I wanted to change. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I should have fixed this drum fill. I should have. <laughs> oh, I love yeah. it. Um, so tell me about this. Of course, anyone who has any inkling of you, even a, the most casual fan knows um, about your love and passion for Japan and Japanese culture and your longtime residency there. Tell me about this video that you sent me <laughs> what, is, what is the context oh, okay. of it? Uh, well i was told this was about metallica it is but it's so about you too i'll try to <laughs> but this video is more about metallica than it is about me so but i think it's something that metallica fans need to know and i don't even know if the band knows about this um there's this show in japan that's been going on it's a long-running show it's been on since maybe 30 years maybe even more it's that every single person in Japan knows it. It's called Soramimi. And what it means is um, Japanese people listen to lyrics of non-Japanese songs. And occasionally a phrase will pop out and sound Japanese. Mm. You, you follow me? Because mm -hmm. no one speaks English here. No one speaks other languages. Very few people speak English over here. So it's easy to hear lyrics that you don't understand. And then it kind of resembles something sounds like your own language to you. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So what they've been doing ever since forever is it's people send in postcards when they, they hear a song and um, they'll hear a song in this section and at two, 40, two minutes and 45 seconds, this lyric sounds exactly like, and they say something in Japanese. It sounds like this Japanese phrase. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then what happens is the TV program makes a little skit about what I just explained to you. They'll take the thing that the, the listener had heard and they take that Japanese and they make a little very short video movie like what I just sent you. Did you mm -hmm. watch it? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So you're like probably thinking, what the fuck happened? Yes. Um, they take, they make a little comedy video of that. Right. And so they put all the English lyrics up just up until the thing that sounds Japanese. And then they put the Japanese lyric, oh. supposed Japanese lyric in there. And it's it coincides with the punchline of the video. So I'll explain this one to you. Please, and, um, please, and I'll and, and I'll yeah, I'll, I'll link the video in the in the show notes also. Yeah, I think people outside need, Japan need to know this. And <laughs> yeah. just just so you know, um, I've been doing this show for about um, I don't know, maybe more than ten years, twelve years. Uh -huh. uh, I do the yearly wrap up where they do the best of the whole year, and uh, the show is so popular here that in some circles people know me more from being on this show once a year 
than for a lot of other things. It's, sure. it's a crazy thing. This this show is very very well loved in Japan. This is my um, exact type of nerdery, by the way. So we're oh, uh, this is it. This is where I live. The show is insane. So um, what happens is in this video that I sent um. The song is Enter Sandman, and uh, you hear the song going around, and right at the point where he says, till the Sandman he comes, is a lyric, right? Mm -hmm. Something like, till the Sandman he comes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Apparently, to some Japanese listener, it sounded like, Chiyoda Seimei ni Iko. And um, it actually does sound like that. Sure, it, so it sounded like it to me just now <laughs> when you said no, it. I mean, yeah. when you listen to the lyric, especially if your ears are accustomed, accustomed to listening, hearing only things in Japanese, you uh -huh. hear a foreign lyric, the only thing that's going to stand out is if something sounds like your own language, correct? Yeah, and, and so, it's like that thing in our and where our brains are wired to look for patterns. So I would exactly. imagine your ear is doing the same thing. You're trying to grasp something. If you put the some, lyric something. up yeah. in Japanese under that, it even solidifies that even more. So what that is, the Japanese I just told you, Chiyoda Seimei, is it means Chiyoda life insurance. Chiyoda is a part of <laughs> Tokyo. Uh -huh. And um, so Chiyoda Seimei ni Iko means let's go to Chiyoda life insurance. <laughs> so why that video is funny is because they have a bunch of kids walking in the streets, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, some of them have rock T-shirts, and they're, like, all excited and stuff, right? So you don't know what the punchline is. They're just walking through the streets, and then suddenly they see a sign on the building that says, Chiyoda Seimei. And then the lyric says, Chiyoda Seimei ni Iko, which means let's go to Chiyoda Life Insurance. And that's when the punchline <laughs> of the video hits. And so, like, you don't know why these kids are roaming the streets. And then you see the sign. It's like, oh, let's go to Chiyoda Life Insurance. And just the absurdity of that whole thing, that's the funny bone in Japanese humor when it comes to this type oh. of uh, this, these kind of jokes. And this has been a popular staple of Japanese TV even before I learned speaking Japanese. Um, back when I came here, when I first started touring here, um, they would. I would watch the show regularly. I barely understood it, but they would do Megadeth songs on there and Metallica songs mm -hmm. on there. Uh, it's not only metal. That's another thing. It's every kind of music from every part of the world. They would in the Europe the year end wrap up that I do. They do pop version, the metal version, dance music version, uh, African music. They got songs from Kenya and Latin music and different every different genre you could imagine. So, but in metal, you know, there's a lot of famous, this is a very well-known Metallica um, metal version. So if you were to talk about Inner Sandman in Japan, people are going <laughs> to know this show <laughs> rather than the song. Yeah. And Through the Never, there's a song called Through the Never yeah, by Metallica. The Black Album, sure. And that is probably the most famous one. The most famous one of this show is the one for Through the Never. Um, and um, it would take forever to explain it to you, but um, if you say through the never to a Japanese person, they will immediately tell you about this program. <laughs> so every time I go on this show, I explain to the, the other guests on the show that the artists that are making these songs have no idea that this show even exists right. and how much 
they're being made fun of. (laughs) (laughs) I remember there was a great one with Rage Against the Machine. And it was just like, you know, sometimes the the jokes can be really, really stupid, but Mm -hmm. hilariously funny. And I know that Rage Against the Machine is like a type of band that takes themselves really serious with, you know, politics and stuff like that. Sure. And I'm like, I really hope that they never find out how much fun you guys are having at their expense. And um, I'm, but they're probably if they were if it was explained to them, they'd probably be very cool with it because I know uh, Tom Morello just made the most brilliant, brilliant speech at the Kiss Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I'm sure he'd be cool with it. But I just thought it was such a funny contrast to a band that has such that's so serious, know, yeah, political serious band. And they you know a lot of the jokes on the show are kind of R-rated, kind of risque, you know, kind of sexual in nature. And, you know, there's a lot of TNA on the show sometimes. So it's just really, really a big popular uh, show in Japan. And and Metallica gets mentioned on there often. So when I heard this podcast was about Metallica, I thought that uh, you might want to know about it. Oh, it's the most perfect thing you could have brought. (laughs) That's so yeah, great, cool. and and, and as a big fan of music and and comedy as well, and I it, it sort of remind I realize it's a different thing culturally, but it sort of reminds me of just misheard lyrics in general. How your brain can—that's what it is. Yeah, like identify, and it just it's it's so much cooler even that they're hearing Japanese phrases that aren't there. Well, they they then they got to make videos. You they got to <laughs> right. get actors to do these videos. And um, it's just hilarious. It's just it's just really hilarious. And I wish more people could uh, enjoy it. It's one of those things that when you learn any other language, sometimes you get privy to different, you know, different funny bones than you're used to in your normal language. So I I feel very lucky to uh, be a part of it. But I I hope that I can share that with uh, some Metallica fans. Because uh, it's a whole different dimension. (laughs) (laughs) It's a different dimension in the... They just love it in Japan. I want to get that out there for sure. Well, there's a couple of things really quickly that that makes me think of. I want to tell you one. I was just thinking about this this morning. You know, as a kid, you know, when you're watching TV and we had our, our three networks, uh, for you would hear before commercials uh, brought to you by, you know, this, this program is brought to you by Sears or whatever. Right. I, as a kid, always misheard that as brought you, which I thought was one word. Like B R O U G H T E D, right? <laughs> and I understood it from context to mean like a company is, you know, presenting a TV program to you or whatever. But for most of my childhood, I, I walked around thinking that was a word, and I'll still hear. I was listening to a podcast this morning, and they said this podcast is brought to you by, and I still, for a second, always hear this imaginary word. Um, Isn't that funny? It also reminds me of a story that I read. Um, I'll send you a link to it when we wrap up. Um, or you may be familiar with it, uh, but there was a singer in Italy in the 70s who wrote a song. Uh, basically, the, the joke of it was that uh, Italians were so into American culture at the time, and his attitude was that they would love any song that's American more than they would love anything. Oh, I've that's heard Italian. of that. Yeah, I know. I know about that thing. Yeah, they they, they just sang nonsense. It's nonsense designed to sound like English, and it became a hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't actually say anything. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Oh, it's it makes so sense. brains are funny. Brains are 
funny. Well, Marty, thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this. Um, and Absolutely yeah, my pleasure. And I already know that that Metallica Inner Sandman thing is going to be all, all right, a companion piece uh, for Loudwire oh, that's around great. the podcast. And that'll, that'll be the headline. So. That's um, great. <laughs> we'll get that out there. <laughs> yeah. One thing I definitely want you to mention somehow, either in the podcast or in a link, is uh, the live streaming concert yes. I'm doing on, uh, on New Year's Day. Yes, which and, is uh, um, right around the corner. T- tell me about that. Because, um, yeah, this is going to come out. The episode will come out before that. Um, awesome, awesome. Although I don't think you've announced the live stream yet, right? I have announced it, yes, yes. Oh, you have? Okay. Cool. I have announced it, yeah. And uh, tickets just went on sale, so whenever this comes out, will be cool. But, uh, yeah, this is going to be like the most ambitious live stream out there at least from this side um Mm -hmm. live streams have become like a complete probably same thing in america too but um in japan they've just like taken it to a new level because so few real concerts are happening that that people have had to uh, really be creative in making live streams absolutely jaw-dropping so you can enjoy them at home it's Mm -hmm. not just playing music like in a concert you just stand up and play um They've just really made it really artistic and 3D and all kinds of really modern ways to present a concert that are extremely entertaining. Um, And in this kind of unusual virtual world, you're going to have me and my band blasting through a set of uh, a lot of my most recent stuff and and a lot of uh, stuff from my previous albums and just a ton of stuff and uh, just a absolute most energetic set that i've ever done and i just once i saw the the blueprint for how they're going to present this thing i couldn't have been more excited um so it's just going to be a super super pumped way to do the new year and hopefully give everybody a lot of really positive vibes and and guitar wise it's just going to be off the hook not not because of me but because of my other guitarist is is like uh, he's going to be the next guitar hero in Japan. He's just an absolute phenomenon, and so he's uh, he toured with me in Australia and did my India festival and really super super band. And I just want everybody to check him out and uh, really get to hear uh, my new stuff. What I'm doing now. If you're familiar with my old stuff, you're going to like it even more because it's just more steroided out, more more guitar and more crazy and more intense and more futuristic and all that. So hopefully uh, uh, you'll be able to join us on New Year's Day and and, and wipe out your hangover with it. <laughs> yeah, and I love that you're taking it beyond just, you know, it, it's great to see the innovation that's happening with some of the live streams where bands are really making it more of an event than just, oh, we filmed ourselves in our practice space. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we do the, a lot of those uh, collaboration things. Uh, I just did a really fun collaboration with a couple of friends um, for uh, Metal Injection, and it was just an absolute blast. You know, you just uh, do it on your iPhone type of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, and those that's are a awesome. great way. Yeah. I love those things, but, like, for a full concert, um, you can't just go to an empty club and film it. You know, it's just not – it's not uh, – something you want to sit home and watch and the Japanese streaming companies have been fiercely competitive in making these things come to like a whole new dimension. Mm -hmm. And uh, the company that's doing ours is called Zyko and they're the absolute 
apex of this stuff. So uh, what I saw that they're putting together for this show is just, you know, it's it's better than a real show as far as I'm concerned. And, and hopefully when things settle down, we'll be able to present a real show in the same manner that we're doing the streaming show. So it's just something I'm really excited about. And hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get a lot of people who couldn't see us because they're not near Japan or wherever I'm mm -hmm. playing. So uh, uh, I really want a lot of people to uh, enjoy my band. Yeah, and I love the Wall of Sound record. I meant to say that was actually how I knew that you were aware of Blackville. Because I know uh, oh, you did the thing so with Chinks on there, so. Oh yes, thanks yeah. so much. Great, great record. Um, yeah, I'll make sure to get all the info um, about the live stream show, both in the Loudwire piece and in the um, podcast notes and all that stuff. So. Very um, much. This has been a, a huge pleasure. Uh, just, just like you never saw Metallica back in the day. Um, as a, you know, I've been a professional, quote unquote, journalist for. 20 years now and um i'd never interviewed marty friedman so <laughs> I'm, I'm, gl I'm glad to cross that off the list it feels way over likewise likewise so. hopefully we'll do some more i would love to man